0: Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we talk about the logical extremes from your asset location to how much cash you should keep on the sidelines. Stick around. That's coming up next.
1: Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Kraftwerk Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Kraftwerk Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed. And please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions.
0: Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Good to see you, my friend. Good to
1: see you. I'm a little bit out of breath, admittedly, from running up and down the stairs to try to quiet my dog who has been raging for the last couple minutes.
0: I mean, that's really pulling back the curtain on how professional our production process is, that you and I are both sitting here looking at each other. You're basically in your living room, and we record this podcast each week.
1: Hey, why not? It's 2023.
0: Exactly. And the dog is excited. So hopefully she calms down with a treat and we can actually record. And she doesn't introduce too much of her own content into our podcast this week.
1: Hopefully not. To be clear, she is certainly not excited. She is furious that someone has entered
0: our property, although invited. Yeah, she doesn't know that though. She she believes there's an intruder.
1: I appreciate that about her. When she's not home, I feel like I miss that security, but it's inconvenient at times, but we'll do our best.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. So, today we are talking about an idea that got spurred because I was looking at a financial planning client's accounts and had just this really odd question. Now, sometimes when odd things happen in an account, it's because quite frankly, maybe the client did something a little bit strange. But this account in particular was being run by a very well-known robo-advisor service. So this is an allocation service that is rebalancing, monitoring, and adjusting this client's accounts. And as I looked at it, in the Roth IRA for the client, the only position that basically existed inside it that I could tell was VWO, which is the Vanguard Emerging Markets ETF. And the more I looked at that, I went, what is happening here? And so that kind of led us down this path. And I think there are times that we think about asset location. Asset location meaning where do you put your positions? If you're going to own X, Y, and Z, which accounts should X, Y, and Z be in? And it gets very complicated, honestly, when you're trying to optimize for things like that. And this feels ultimately like it was an example of optimization that I ultimately didn't agree with. And so that kind of just led us down this path of what are some ways that we see things optimized that, that might be a little bit funny. But Dan, why would VWO, and again, we're not recommending or not recommending that position. I, we, we own that as part of our practice. But why would that be the only thing in a Roth IRA?
1: So when we think about tax location, typically we like to keep some of our most aggressive or at least ideas with the highest potential return in Roth IRAs because of the tax status. So the more compounding your growth you get in the Roth IRA, the more bang for your buck you get for having already paid the taxes on the money in there. So when we look at this robo allocator service, who thinks they can do things better than you can, they put VWO in that account we suspect because their models show that international markets and in particular emerging markets have the highest expected return over the long run. So if they're optimizing this tax location strategy for you, that should be the thing they own in your Roth IRA.
0: And that is consistent with our tools as well, quite frankly. So the main financial planning tool that we use, which is called Money Guide, it's owned by a company called InvestNet, It also has capital markets assumptions baked into it. And if you look at those capital markets assumptions, they are assigning the highest future value to the emerging markets segment. So when we talk about emerging markets, we used to be talking about what was called the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China. That's still essentially kind of what's in there, even though I don't necessarily think of China as a completely developing country anymore. I think that landscape has kind of shifted, and you've seen fund companies come out with, well, is it emerging or is it frontier markets? And you're like, oh my goodness, how how bad are we going to break this one segment down? And it is an, a complicated segment of the world because you're talking about many different geopolitical and location oriented and different currencies, right? There's a lot that ends up in that basket of emerging markets, but our software agrees with that 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 is the highest performing future expected return but that leads to a problem if you're wrong.
1: Right, exactly. So though that may be theoretically right, in practice, putting all of your Roth IRA assets in that one asset class could expose you to undue risk that jeopardizes. It's unlikely that that would be your whole Roth IRA that goes downhill. But if that is not what actually materializes, your Roth could lag materially, and that could impact your whole retirement plan if you've been considering that Roth as a key part of your retirement cash flow strategy.
0: I mean, in addition to that on a price return basis, uh, I'm not looking at the dividend here, but on a price return basis over the last 5 years, VWO is down 3.44% roughly as I'm looking at this, we're we're recording on Friday the 4th, and the S&P 500's up about 59% over that same period also not including the dividend. So, you know, just at a simple take, That has not been a successful strategy if that's all that's been in your Roth. You've turned tax-free growth into stagnant in in that case. And so I think it kind of introduces this element of where the science and the optimization and kind of where the behavior has to meet the theory in the work that we do.
1: Yeah, in a similar sense, when I thought about that story, I think... I've been a stock investor my whole life. I've almost always held individual positions. And people often ask me, well, what's your favorite stock? What's your best idea right now? And I may have one. And then they'll say, well, why don't we own more of that or only that? Because the same thing could happen. It could be my highest conviction idea. And I could be, first, totally wrong, period. It might be the worst idea in the world. Or I could be wrong for a very long time, and how long are you willing to follow that strategy if I'm wrong for five years? So, in your example, VWO has been flat basically for the last five years. It could still be a great performer and outperform the S and P 500 for all we know. That could definitely happen. But how long are you willing to let it be flat before you decide this strategy doesn't work? And that's a big risk too.
0: Yeah, this reminded me when we first started talking about this, and. I mean, this is many years ago at this point that I had the conversation, and I had a very um, honestly, I thought it was a funny conversation because the the person that I was talking to basically said, "This is before savings accounts were making you know four and a half percent or whatever they're making now," but they were saying, "Look, my cash makes absolutely nothing; the market makes more. Why would I keep any cash?" And so our normal answer there is, "Well, liquidity, you know, whatever." And they had access to a line of credit. They had access to plenty of credit cards. They kind of had all of the answers for, well, you know, if there was an emergency, this is where I would get cash from. And, and yeah, you could say, okay, well, maybe there's interest in whatever. I saw a Chase card yesterday that was being advertised to me for 21 months as the interest free period. So if I went out and got that Chase card and said, Dan, that's my emergency reserve is that I'm going to have this line of credit where I can access, I don't know what I would get approved at today, maybe 20 grand on a on a new Chase card. If Chase is willing to offer me $20,000, do I need $20,000 in the bank or is that line of credit for free totally adequate for what we need to do from a planning perspective?
1: I think that's a wonderful question for a debate, by the way, because I hear that excuse, not that excuse, but that theory a lot And I think in many regards, it's right. That is liquidity that you could have at the drop of a hat if you need it. But that does introduce a lot of risk because you're doubling down. You're you're creating leverage, which can be great. Or it can also be very risky because now you have a debt to repay. And if things don't go your way in the right time frame, you're going to be crunched again. And where do you find that liquidity down the road?
0: I mean I think that that's true and and certainly that would be the risk right and I'm not advocating that anybody go out and do this I think we're having this discussion from an academic perspective but let's look at what could go wrong well okay let's say I'm doing this because I want to invest the money I think the stock market is the better opportunity okay so you're introducing risk there but in theory you do have capital that you could go tap into we also know that the average recovery length from a bear market is 18 to 24 months. Now there have been periods where it took longer. In 2008, I think from, you know, from March of 09, you had to get back to 2012. So that was a 3-year recovery period. So 21 months of interest-free credit card is not enough in that instance, but in most bear markets, you're going to get back to about even over that time period. So even if you're investing the money, you're going to have capital to go repay that debt. And and so I think at the logical extreme I have trouble arguing with people that make that point even though at the end of the day I think it's a more aggressive choice than what I would make because I'm sitting on plenty of cash right now and that is, you know, for a couple reasons one it's ultimately probably for a house purchase at some point whenever that happens to to occur but number 2 it's just because I think of cash as the safest thing I can keep on my balance sheet. As a business owner with variable income, to me, that helps me sleep at night. But for somebody with a W-2 job that's very consistent, I can see why they go down that path.
1: True. Yeah. If you have a consistent W-2 job, I think the risk becomes lower. Also, as a business owner with lumpy cash flow, I always say you can't pay your mortgage with a credit card, or at least I can't. I don't know if anyone else can. To the extreme end of what you're saying, if we're assuming the market goes up three out of every four years, there's been no period of 30 years where the markets go gone down and you have a 0% access to capital i mean you should just use all of it like take all the money invest everything leverage up double down like i've seen that in practice recently and people have been burned with that strategy too but again if we're talking about the in theory versus in practice i would just take every source of cash i can and invest it and in theory i'll have a positive outcome
0: I had that idea back when mortgage rates were still really low. When you were seeing, you know, a, a thirty-year at sub three percent. You know, if there's never been a period in in the S and P five hundred, or at least I think this dates back to nineteen fifty, is the chart that I normally look at. But the worst twenty-year rolling period in the S and P five hundred is like six percent annualized gains, right? And so, if I could borrow money over thirty years at three percent and make a predictable six percent over time why wouldn't i take out like max leverage to the top of my savings rate and essentially take out a mortgage on the s p 500 now i don't think you can get any bank to underwrite that product that would basically be it's like a reverse annuity right like your commitment is to pay in the capital over 30 years And then you're going to end up with whatever the variable portion of the portfolio did. Nobody would make that product. But in my mind, that was like a genius idea that if I could borrow this cheap money, why wouldn't I just crank that up and create the obligation for myself to pay? But I would have gotten way more money invested way earlier in the process versus what it would look like paying in monthly dollar cost averaging over a 30 year long period the forward returns should be massive relative to that if you had gotten all the capital invested at the start of the period.
1: I remember when you came up with that idea. If we ran those numbers from the day you had that thought, I'm sure we would be blown away. Because the S&P, you just cited it, the five-year on the S&P is over 50-something percent, and that's price return, right?
0: Correct. Yeah, I think it's 58% over the last five years. And it probably was about five years ago that we were talking about this because, that I, I don't know... Again, this is just us goofing around like back of the office shop talk. This is not a legitimate product idea that we had, but I thought it was an interesting concept of if you could lock in low financing rates and basically inflation lock your payment for investing, how powerful could that be?
1: Well, th- this is you you are an insurance company basically issuing fixed annuities, right? Someone could give you could probably write that contract today with someone. I mean, in- interest rates aren't where they were back then, so you know, you'd have a tougher time having as easy a slam dunk return at, at least compared to when rates were 2%. But you could probably get someone to give you money to whatever extent they trust your creditworthiness and make that payment to them and you just pop that in an S&P 500 index fund and let the rewards start accruing for
0: you. I think that's true. In my mind, the reason it didn't work in in practical nature is that the reason a house loan is so low is the collateral. Right. And then it's the insurance against the collateral. Right. And so for a bank to be willing to issue 3% money, they need some assurances that they can either come take your home from you or that they've got insurance on like the private mortgage insurance side, that if your home declines in value, that they're going to be made whole. And so in the case of making an S&P 500 investment, they would have to be willing to accept that same price volatility of what the market's going to do. Now, again, I think a smart bank that understands might do that. But as we just saw earlier this year with Silicon Valley Bank, right? if the value of their collateral drops... For banks, that really creates some bad environments, right? So they don't want to be foreclosing on my S&P 500 index portfolio, because quite frankly, they could have to take over ownership of that. And then it creates all these capital calls. So again, the, the further and further I got into the logic on this, it was kind of like, yeah, I understand why nobody would do this. Or maybe they would require that you put in 20, 25, 30% down, so to speak, as your equity in the portfolio that they could also take. But really what I designed was just a massive 30-year-long margin loan. That, that's <laughs> essentially what I designed was I wanted a really highly levered margin loan on really broad-based assets where the predictable outcome becomes much more consistent over time. But that time is what the bank would have to be willing to risk uh, is being involved in that same level of volatility to take on that debt. Again, that's a crazy idea, but I, I thought it was a fun one at the extreme logic of why wouldn't I do this?
1: It's funny that you brought up Silicon Valley Bank in our in theory versus in practice discussion because I think that's another good example of something working in theory, but not working in reality where you know they had a book of bonds that got devalued because of the change in interest rates. In theory, that bank was still fine. They were solvent you know, long-term, they didn't have any real issues necessarily. Although I think under the hood, there were a lot of issues that were discovered after the fact, but that was not the only issue that they were facing. Like if that were it, they probably would have been fine if news never got out of the the value of this, this book of bonds. But in practice on their balance sheet, they have to write off like a substantial number against this bond book they're holding for the long-term that caused a run on the bank that really spiraled downhill. So, Again, managing in theory versus in practice are very different things.
0: Yeah. And I mean, not to do even a callback to, to last week's episode, that was kind of our, our point with the podcast about the Money with Katie episode, right? In theory, I think her math works. And in practice, we see how people respond to you know, maybe not saving the tax savings from doing a, a pre-tax 401k. We don't actually see people executing in the exact same theory. And so I think our point for most of this is, especially for the engineers out there, I think that this is a really important lesson. I think there's a tendency to want to absolutely optimize your finances, to to get to a spot where you've made the perfect decision. And in this world, I think we should be shooting for about 85 to 90% of the way. I think we should be able to shoot for a justified, practical decision that is going to likely work that's the important part. It, it does need to likely work, but if you are trying to fine tune so far that you've got the absolute perfect asset location, asset allocation, etc., you're going to drive yourself up a wall. Like you just absolutely are. There isn't a perfect asset allocation. When we look, and and this is the terminology I'm using in our financial plans now, I talk about a range of what might be appropriate. And that range might be, for example, on an allocation, hey, you're good between 90-10, meaning 90% stocks, 10% bonds and cash, down to 50-50. Like you, you need at least 50% stock allocation simply to keep up with inflation and to do what you need to do. And you could go as high as 90. A 40% range maybe doesn't sound helpful, but that's the reality. People go, well, what's the right allocation for me? Somewhere between 50 and 90. And again, that that's not an example. That's not universal. So I'm not telling everybody out there that that should be their allocation right now. But that's actually how it works in practice. And then between that, you're going to have a huge range of outcomes where on the 50-50 end, you're probably not going to have as high returns over time. You're going to be accepting lower returns for more capital stability. And on the higher end, you're going to say, hey, I'm going to go on that emotional roller coaster. But both of those are... Kind of outcomes are within a very reasonable. This will work plan, and so that's really how I think about planning: is let's find the range and stay inside it, rather than completely try and optimize. Even though it's great when we find those little wins and those those techniques that are going to really add a lot of value.
1: Right. So, from my viewpoint, risk tolerance comes into play in between that range. It's like sure you can express your preference for risk tolerance, but first the thing has to work. So let's get it into the range that works. And then let's talk about your risk and what you're willing to trade off. When we were talking about whether you should invest the cash you have, it's the same thing. So let's say I have money to do a deck replacement on my house that I'm hoping to do next year. It's sitting in cash because financial planner Daniel would say, if you're going to spend that money, you should hold it aside. But then client Daniel says, well, the market goes up three out of four years. Why don't I invest it and have more money next year? My question would be, how willing are you not to replace your deck next year? And if the answer is I'm fine with that, all right, maybe you can invest it. But if you want to replace the deck, for sure, you can do that if you keep that cash safe and liquid and there's no more question about what the future holds.
0: Yeah, that's the hardest part, I think, when we, when we do some of these modeling exercises is the fact that, like, yeah, if if you're not feeling good about the market, like, maybe you would just defer that project. And... There's no way that I've ever seen to model like decision variability, like in terms of that timing into the models, right? What we're really able to model well is the variability in the market. And so, what these software packages are basically assuming is unstable market, but stable goals. When I think actually for most people, there's instability in both or at least flexibility in both. It's not that they're instable, but there's a flexible nature to, well, if the last three years in the market sucked, I'm probably not going to retire. Or if the last two years in the market sucked and I'm retired, maybe I don't burn through cash at the exact same rate that I was going to and act like nothing has happened around me. Now, I can easily get up on my soapbox and say, we should be building your portfolio and your assets so that they support the life you want to lead, right? We don't want the the money to control us, but in the in the instance where it's not hard and fast and we really need to be super specific about when we make that choice, there's a lot of variability. There's a lot of ability to flex what you're going to do and not do even month to month in in how you spend your money if if you've got variable income like we do. So, um I realize this is a little bit theoretical in terms of our conversation. I hope it makes sense. Maybe you saw yourself in some of these questions and uh, thought, oh, yeah, I've had some version of that thought. What's your experience with it? Do you have some example in your head where you went, well, why wouldn't I do this thing that seems so simple? If that's what's likely to work over time, we'd love to hear from you. Check your balances at outlook.com is the email address for our show. We appreciate you tuning in and we will catch you next week.